Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson, Media and Publicity Officer, and I'll be your host for this, the first edition of our all-new podcast format. Each month, we'll be out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff in our three regular platforms. Research Focus, featuring conversations with academics about their pioneering areas of research. Next up, Birkbeck People, where we'll dive into the Birkbeck community and come back to the surface with some funny anecdotes and inspirational stories in tow. And finally, The Calendar, where we find out what's going on in the college's packed programme of events. So, without further ado, let's get cracking. First up this month is Research Focus. The Department of Applied Linguistics and Communication is currently celebrating its 50th year, a significant milestone which reflects the top-level research it has carried out across the decades. Over the past 50 years, researchers within the department have been at the forefront of examining aspects of language across social, cultural, political and psychological strata. I caught up with Professor Jean-Marc Douala, who joined Birkbeck's French department in 1994 and transferred to Applied Linguistics in 2006. Jean-Marc told me about his specific areas of research and what lies ahead on his academic journey. So, welcome to the podcast, uh, Jean-Marc. Thank you very much for joining us in this, our new format of Birkbeck Voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just to jump straight in to talk about um, your general area of research interest. When we, we emailed earlier on, um, I asked you to describe in a nutshell, which I imagine isn't an easy thing to do for a career-spanning um, answer. Um, to to describe your broad area of interest, you said emotion as the beating heart of everything we do. I mean, that's a huge statement. How does that um, apply to your particular study of linguistics and communication? Um, Emotion is really at the heart of everything. Um, Having been a a language teacher, uh, I noticed that without emotion, nobody reacts. People fall asleep or bored. So you need to get their emotional uh, levels up so that they absorb and they may agree or disagree and they may display positive or negative emotions. Um, And I think that anything we do really is is driven by uh, emotion. Um, And then I became interested also uh, when moving to England in the communication of emotion itself. Uh, I realized that uh, people express their emotions quite differently in different cultures, in different languages. And um, I was struck when I arrived at uh, Birkbeck on how stiff upper lipped my colleagues were. And um, they didn't display much emotion at staff meetings. Uh, So in in Brussels, uh, staff meetings could be quite chaotic and noisy and people would, would slam the table with their fists and, and raise their voices. And, and here every, everybody was amazingly polite and uh, volume remained very level. And Did um, you find that difficult, an environment to work in initially? It, it was strange and I totally misunderstood everything. Um, I thought people were really, very, really liked each other because they were so civil. Um, and it's only after a while that I started realizing that, in fact, they were they, they, they were being really nasty to each other, but, but in a very polite way. <laughs> uh, and, and I was asked, uh, for example, to uh, devise a, a new entrance test for the French department. And I proposed something computerized, uh, not realizing that 
the colleagues who have retired since all hated computers and anything computerized. And so uh, I, I proposed uh, the, the, the new system. And then the head of department said, interesting. And I thought, OK, fine. And there was no vote on it, because in Belgium we would have voted and people would have voiced agreement, disagreement. But everybody was very polite, but very silent. So after the meeting, I went to the head of department and said, OK, well, uh, you know, can we can I implement this? And he said, oh, no, of course not. And I said, well, didn't you just say that it was interesting? He said, exactly, interesting. And at that point, I realized, right, I, I don't get I don't get this. So I went through a silent period after that. And then... An observation period. Uh, observation yeah. period. And then I started um, uh, using French, uh, which put them at a disadvantage, because although they were all very fluent speakers of French, I had the kind of pragmatic upper hand uh, there. And, um, and, and I could be funny in French, which I couldn't uh, in English. And then it took me a while um, to, to, to pick up the social pragmatic rules on how you display uh, agreement, disagreement, but also emotions. And, and, and sometimes it comes in unexpected ways, like um, it, things that you don't pick up by reading books or watching the news. Uh, like um, a colleague tells me suddenly um, that her mother had died. And, and I realize, damn, how do I, how do people express condolences in English? Mm. I had never done that. And it's not the kind of thing they teach you at school. And yet it's something that is it's so important not to get that wrong. And then I thought, right, it can't be too different from what it is in French and Dutch. So I, I, I did something that I think was appropriate. But then you realize how many gaps you have that you don't even realize. And, and that's one of the challenges, I think, in um, ha having to... Uh, interpret and, and express emotions in, in foreign contexts. So then this is one of the many factors that informed your specific areas of study and the particular papers that you've written. Yeah, that I, I thought, I guess we are always guided by things that happen to us. Uh, so I was asking myself, you know, why is it so hard? Um, and then I, st I, I realized that, in fact, this was part of my research domain, that social linguistic pragmatic competence um, uh, deals with intercultural communication and emotion is a, a, a big part of that. And then also after 9-11, um, after in fact, um, I, I realized that everything I had done until then was relatively abstract and disconnected from reality. I was interested in gender agreement in French, mm -hmm. for example, um, which is a perfectly legitimate topic, but it won't change the world or affect anything. And after 9-11, I realized that as applied linguists, we need to do something positive for society and that we need to defend uh, values of tolerance uh, and diversity and that we have to um, combat prejudice. And, and there is lots, uh, lots of prejudice around. Uh, and um, I met with uh, an American colleague, Aneta Pavlenko, and we started doing research on emotion in the early uh, 2000s. And um, and we realized that this is, in fact, a domain that has practical uh, implications. And, and one of these relatively unexpected implications is uh, the work I started doing a couple of years ago with Beverly Costa. And we presented a paper together uh, at our 50th uh, anniversary event. Uh, and, and that was about multilingualism in psychotherapy. 
And this is exactly about the topic of how do people express their emotions uh, in a foreign language? And um, shouldn't the psychotherapist be aware that if the patient switches languages, that that might be telling him or her something? and that people switch for different reasons, like they switch because uh, to, to the foreign language because then they can talk about something that is just too painful to talk about uh, in the first language. And I'm thinking also about people who have been, you know, raped or, 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 or traumatized. And then the language in which the event happens is, is typically brings up too much vivid detail and then switching to a foreign language can allow the person to talk about it without getting too upset. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, sometimes people may switch back to the first language because the because they want to communicate detail that they can't quite describe uh, in, in the foreign language. So uh, w with uh, Beverly, we've been working. Uh, she's um, uh, head of a charity called Mother Tongue. Um, and uh, so they are they are offering counseling services to uh, people who are not native speakers of English, and she's also trying to uh, influence policy within the NHS in making people aware that having someone using English as a foreign language, that you cannot assume that that person will react in the same way that a native speaker of English would. Mm -hmm. And this is a very fundamental point that is often, surprisingly often, overlooked. And I think that this is also one of the points that we want to make as a department. All of us are interested in different aspects of multilingualism, that uh, the bilingual is not the sum of two monolinguals. This is something absolutely crucial. And so we, we, we do lots of research on different aspects of this. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that was, but neither are they um, as straightforward as, as, you know, one monolingual with just an added element. They're somewhere in between. They're in this liminal uh, position. Ab absolutely. Th that's what makes it so, makes the research so interested, be interesting because we shift without realizing how much we shift linguistically, but also our values. Having spent 21 years in the UK, I realized that I don't share the Belgian values completely anymore, but, but no British person would consider me to be a fellow British. So I'm somewhere in between, which is fine to me. I'm a bit hybrid. And so um, my PhD students, a lot of them do work on acculturation. How long does it take before you start, um, you know, you, you, you get to social pragmatic rules about hmm, that person is polite. Oh, that person is rude, um, which is acceptable in this environment or how long does it take before uh, you start um, sharing the values of, of your host society? And, and it takes a while and some people shift faster than others and some wish to forget everything about their first language culture and background. Others are very proud of their first language background and don't want to shift too far. So you have a wide diversity and that links into the general thing I'm interested in, I would say, which is individual differences. Mm -hmm. Why are we all so different? Um, and, and how and to what can these differences be linked? That's something I find fascinating. And it's also a very interdisciplinary uh, topic because you have psychology, you have sociology, you have pure language uh, issues, uh, you, you have things that are hard to measure. Um, but through talking to people, sometimes you get insights on why do you do this? Why do you think that? 
Yeah. It, it's that's something that you that you have written very specifically about in one of your papers about um, why we act differently or why we are different mm. when we speak different languages. Those, mm. I mean, I I don't speak another language, so I can only um, enjoy what you've you've written. Mm-hmm. Um, one person talks about it as feeling as if it's a different persona that mm. she takes on. Not saying that that's you know a false um, impression or anything. That's just what it feels like to her. Mm. How common is that, that you find that kind of experience that somebody feels like they shift between slightly different facets of their being when yeah. they shift language? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the research you refer to, about 80% uh, of the um, over 1,000 participants uh, reported that, yes, they, they felt some shift when they switched languages. Um, the difficulty is to know exactly how deep that shift is. Is it different personality or is it just a different persona um, and and we, we, we could ha- debate that for, for, for quite a long time um, but I think that um, s- for, for, for some people switching to to another language allows them to um, escape some social constraints um, that are prevalent in, in their first language culture um, hence um, uh, some of our um, Arab-speaking or, or Asian participants that would say, oh, you know, I, I can't possibly express this uh, in my uh, first language because that would be socially unacceptable. But if I do it in English, within my first language community, nobody will be offended. So I could use swear words in English. It won't offend anyone. But if I use swear words in my L1, then considering my position in society, that would be considered in a totally uh, inappropriate. So they would then report feeling freer uh, in w- when using English. Um, so that, that, that's one small example about these different persona. Or, or then people who have um, a romantic uh, view of um, some uh, imagined foreign language community um, um, that reported to um, people who were uh, studying French or English back in the USSR. Uh, and were dreaming about liberty. So they would study French and imagine themselves eating croissants in Paris and escape the dreary reality. Um, And hence the use of French allowed them to be free citizens of the world. And the funny thing is then the person I'm I'm, uh, thinking of then uh, went to Paris, discovered that the Croissants didn't taste quite uh, <laughs> as good as she had hoped. Now, coffee was was too expensive. And in the end, she immigrated to the States and she's become a professor in an American university. <laughs> so so things can develop in, in, in funny and unexpected ways. And that's another aspect that I find really interesting is how much can we predict through statistics and how useful is it to use statistics? I think it is good to find general patterns but then when you start to look at unique individuals, you, you, you realize that a lot of people don't fit the patterns for all kinds of in- interesting reasons because of, you know, unique life events. You fall in love with the speaker of a language and suddenly you become immersed in that language and you may even forget your first language or, or, or you, you, you love the language up to a point where something really horrible happened in that language and you turn f- away from that language and Every time you hear that language, you, you, you shiver. So, so, and that would be the end of it. But, but that's pretty unpredictable, and, and, and it happens. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm really interested in all that. Yeah. And just lastly, um, I mean, we, we could talk on this topic, you know, as, as we said for, for a long, long time. It's so interesting and it affects so many different areas of, of society, of, of individual personality. Mm. 
Um, just lastly, what what are your future research goals? What can you tell me about what you're going to be aiming for? Right. Oh, I've got plenty of plans, too many, in fact. <laughs> um, um, and I'm, I'm following the, the research of my PhD students also uh, very closely. But um, right now I'm very excited about um, a project. Um, um, I'll start with uh, Euronews. Um, and the, the aim is to see what the impact is um, of watching the news in your first language or in uh, a second language. Uh, and whether it has the same emotional impact. Um, and and they, they read my book and contacted me, and I thought, wow, this is really nice. And uh, so they um, use uh, software developed by Real Eyes, um, which is facial recognition okay. uh, software. So um, we'll set up an experiment where we have uh, 1,000 uh, bilinguals um, watching. Uh, video fragments and a uh, webcam uh, it will be focused on their face and we will see how they react emotionally uh, to the news or, or to these fragments presented to them. And then we will try and see whether they react differently in their different languages. And this opens a, a, a whole new perspective on uh, emotion research. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Fascinating. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And now on to the second feature of the podcast, Birkbeck People. Recognising the achievements of students is at the heart of Birkbeck, but we also like to highlight the talents of our staff from time to time. Earlier this summer, Dr Wendy Hine of the college's Department of Management was announced as the winner of this year's Birkbeck Excellence in Teaching Award, or BETA for short. An integral part of the college's learning and teaching strategy, the annual BETA Award supports and encourages excellence in teaching and learning by providing formal recognition of pedagogic achievement. Sitting on the balcony of the Chlor Management Centre recently, Dr Hine took some time out to explain what the award means to her, what her day job entails, and what she does when she's not busy teaching. My name is Wendy Hine. I am the Programme Director for the MSc Marketing and as part of the MSc Marketing I also teach two main modules. One is Consumer Behaviour and the other one is Public Relations and I am a critical consumer researcher, a critical feminist gender consumer researcher, so I'm particularly interested in gender perspectives in consumer research, particularly men and masculinities. About the BETA Award and why I think I was selected as a winner, I believe because I make teaching part of my research. I'm extremely interested in, as I mentioned, in gender perspectives, but as part of this, of course, in critical perspectives and um, particularly facilitating understandings how we become ethical and responsible in, our, in management and in marketing. One of the areas that I addressed in, in, my, in my statement was, um, well, assessment. So how do we all become parts of, of, or how do we all become agents of change? How can we all do our bit, for example? And I use various different digital um, components that, uh, that can become part of, of assessment. I have a, a two-year-old son, he will be two in August, and um, he is um, just such a brilliant, brilliant, um, 
aspect of my life um, that I love to spend as much time with as I possibly can when I'm not here. Um, I also have a house that is falling apart in bits and pieces, so when I'm not here, I'm patching up um, here and there and trying to make it livable. Um, I'm an avid record collector. We have a burgeoning record collection in the house. And these days, it's, it's, it's mainly about kids' records. You've got to live in London, you know. You have to take it with the good and the bad, you know, see the various different zones and suburbs and travel around as much as you can and see what's happening in different areas in London. I'm always amazed with different multicultural communities such, such as the one I'm living in myself and, and you know, eating well across the different foods and, uh, and then yeah, get involved in more and more kids activities. I think there isn't enough play space in London so there are some creative people who are coming up with good ideas and I think at this stage I'm, I'm not experiencing it so it's not something on transition but I'm having a family here, I'm living here. So, um, so that's really different and that's really changed in many ways. It's not about you know, the inner city, about Covent Garden and about you know, well, Camden markets. Um, it's more about your community. And last up, it's the calendar, which this month focuses on the London and the Nation public event, which ran on the 10th and 11th of July. Organised by the Raphael Samuel History Centre and the London Studies Network, the event invited politicians, academics and members of the public to come together at Birkbeck on the Friday, followed by the British Library on the Saturday for a fascinating series of talks and discussions. Dr Thomas Jones of the Raphael Samuel History Centre stopped by to offer up a taste of what was to come at the conference. So, welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thank you very much for joining us on thank this you. Uh, very, a very sunny day yes. um, in a roasting studio, so <laughs> thank you for, for braving that too. No problem. <laughs> um in a nutshell, what is London in the Nation? What's the two-day conference about? Okay, um, well, it is a in-depth sort of look at the political, social, economic, and cultural uh, connections between London and the rest of the UK and the cleavages between London and the rest of the UK. Um, so it's a multifaceted event, and we are interested in looking at these questions both in their sort of contemporary relevance and uh, in their historical aspect. So who's it for? Who are you ideally hoping to see come along across the two days? Right. Well, um, we really want it to be an open sort of event. I mean, it's anyone who's interested in these issues at all are welcome to come. I mean, I imagine we'll have a fair number of students and, uh, and academics who are sort of interested in these questions professionally. Um, but we really are hoping for a sort of wide swath of of people from the public to come in and, and talk about these issues because we want it to be a, a sort of event that's not just you listening to various experts giving lectures, but we want it to be a participatory um, sort of event. There's a lot of time built in for discussion and questions and that sort of thing. So, You've talked about touching on the, um, the historical backdrop as well as the current yeah. day landscape. I mean, what, what is the broad structure across the two days? Yeah, okay, so it's, it is divided precisely in those terms. Um, the first day, which is Friday the 10th at Birkbeck, is investigating uh, the history of London and the nation. And the papers that we've got assembled cover the last three centuries or so. I think the very earliest topic that's covered 
begins in the late 17th century, um, and they they run right up until uh, the late 20th century uh, on the first day. So um, day one, history. Day two, um, London and the nation today. Um, so on that day at the British Library, we'll have journalists and sort of activists and politicians talking about the contemporary sort of state of affairs between London and the nation politically, economically, culturally, etc. Is, is there a, an example of one of the panel discussions that you could give us an insight into? Yeah, um, so on the morning of the 11th uh, at the British Library, we have a panel called London and the Political Nation, where we'll be looking at questions of London's place in the, the national political landscape, uh, particularly after the general election and looking forward to the London mayoral race. Um, <clears throat> so we have Dave Hill, who blogs about London uh, at The Guardian coming in. We have Joe Anderson, the mayor of Liverpool, and we have Andrew Mycock, uh, who works on Britishness uh, as a concept at the University of Huddersfield, all discussing um, you know, whether London is unique in any meaningful sense, politically, ideologically, whether there's a sort of Westminster bubble that's uh, very navel-gazing and inward-looking and ignoring the needs of the rest of the nation, um, all these sorts of issues that were discussed in a fair amount of detail, running up, you know, by politicians running up to the election, uh, we're very, uh, very much looking forward to um, seeing the different <coughs> sides of that debate. Uh, later in the day, we have a panel called uh, "Wealth and Inequality in London and the Nation," where Danny Dorling uh, of Oxford and Tony Travers of at the LSE and Zoe Williams of the Guardian. Uh, are going to be talking about the very uneven effects of uh, the, the economic crash, the recovery, such that it's been, um, you know, the uneven effects of austerity across across the UK, and investigating whether there's a kind of economic decoupling, uh, as it's sometimes been called, um, occurring between London uh, and the rest of the nation, or whether um, you know London still shares economic problems and needs economic, similar economic solutions sure. uh, with the rest of the, in, in tandem with the rest of the UK. It's, it's probably a bit of a, a simplistic and stupid question, but I mean, why is this event and events like it, why, why is it current, why is it relevant, why, and why is it important that, that something like this happens? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think this is a question that's been very, very prominent in the last several years. I mean, you see... Um, you know, programs on the BBC see long sort of pieces in the Observer on Sunday about people sort of packing up and leaving London and how it's become this uninhabitable kind of foreign space um, in the UK. Um, you hear politicians talking about, you know, the Westminster bubble particularly, but um, about London's, you know, purportedly outsized influence um, in the UK. And so I think it's very, it's a very live set of questions, a very sort of salient set of issues, but it's also really nothing very new um, for all of the kind of contemporary relevance and the contemporary feel to it. Um, these are questions that have been debated um, for centuries, for generations and generations. So this is why we wanted to have this kind of two-day structure where we both really dig into these contemporary questions, but also place them in a long sort of historical context. Um, so it seems both kind of of the moment and um, sort of timeless. Mm -hmm. So I thought, um, I think that's why uh, it's relevant today. Yeah. It's always relevant, it seems to me. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And so much for us to draw and reflect back on that might tell us 
what to expect coming up. I mean, uh, we hope so. It, yeah, a, a, ma- a matter of history repeating itself in certain cases, or is it a new landscape each time? At least rhyming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, what what above all do you hope that attendees? will get out of the experience because I mean you're talking about a, a broad spectrum yeah. of people and backgrounds that will be attending this so so what do you hope that these people go away having experienced well um I mean I hope that first of all they'll just enjoy themselves I mean I think it's a, an extremely exciting two days of um, material that we have lined up um, I think the the sort of range of topics covered um, the excellence of the speakers that we have lined up um, all uh, will we'll all make for a very, very excellent event. So, I mean, firstly, we hope people will come and have fun. Um, but, you know, obviously, deeper than that, we, we want people to come away with a sense of, um, of insight into what's going on today, but also, you know, a kind of appreciation uh, of the long-term historical aspect of it all. And we want people to come away feeling like they've had a chance to participate in these sorts of debates. I mean, I was saying a little bit earlier about how we've built in time specifically for uh, discussion, for questions, and that kind of thing. So we want people to, to feel that they've uh, been engaged um, in, a, in a debate that's of relevance to hopefully everyone who will be there. Brilliant. Dr. Thomas Jones, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. And that's it from the first edition of Birkbeck Voice's new magazine format. What did you think? We'd love to hear your thoughts and find out what you'd like to listen to in future editions. Just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. That's communications at bbk.ac.uk. Bye for now and thanks for listening.